The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. Welcome to a special episode of Politics Theory Other. This year, PTO has been very pleased to be a media partner of the World Transformed Festival, which has been running a fantastic programme of events all through September on imagining radical change and planning how to make it happen. My guests for today's special episode are Tabita Chow and David Brophy. We talked about how the left should relate to China, how to characterise China's economy and mode of governance, and what to make of the emerging Cold War between China and the United States. If you enjoy today's episode, please do consider supporting The World Transformed. You can help to sustain their work both at next year's festival and throughout the year at theworldtransformed.org forward slash support. Tabita Chow is the director of Justice is Global, a special project of people's action to create a more just and sustainable global economy and defeat right-wing nationalism. My second guest is David Brophy. David is senior lecturer in modern Chinese history at the University of Sydney and is the author of Uyghur Nation, Reform and Revolution on the Russia-China Frontier. His new book is China Panic, Australia's Alternative to Paranoia and Pandering. So we're going to be talking about how people on the left ought to think about China, ruled of course by the Chinese Communist Party, and how we should relate to the emerging Cold War between China and the United States, and to an extent US allies as well. And I thought perhaps a good place to begin would be to consider exactly what kind of society China is. So on the left, even today, and and in spite of our distance from the initiation of pro-market reforms under Deng Xiaoping in the early 1980s, it's still not uncommon to see people on the left arguing that China is not a capitalist society, or, or if it is, that the PRC maintains elements of a socialist economy in terms of economic planning and the degree of state control of the economy. Although obviously we might want to quibble with, with the idea that those are in and of themselves indicators of the existence of a socialist economy, but, but nonetheless. How would you want to characterise China's economy and, and mode of governance? And do you see any recuperable elements of the Chinese communist tradition at this stage? I think it's very clear that China is a capitalist society. It does have a greater role for state intervention in the economy than we see, you know, in the US. But, you know, as you suggested, I don't think that direction from the state is something that is incompatible with capitalism. So one place to start just getting very clear about this is the relationship between Chinese firms and the Chinese state and Chinese workers. And what we see is just bog standard capitalist labor relations. Workers' labor is exploited for the profit of Chinese firms and the overall growth of the economy. And the state plays an important role in disciplining the labor force and ensuring that workers 
remain weak and disorganized and therefore profitable for Chinese firms. Is there anything recuperable in Chinese communism from a, from a left perspective? I think in terms of, is this a tradition that is putting China on a trajectory to a post-capitalist society? I see no reason to hold out any hope for that. That said, I think we can see some progressive potential in some aspects of the Communist Party rule. So this is not to excuse the anti-democratic nature of the party state or its abuses of, of human rights, but there are some progressive elements of the state's intervention in the economy. One very important example being that China has massively scaled up its clean energy industry and is by far a global leader in a number of clean energy tech fields. And that's going to be important for the future of global society in this century of climate crisis. If China is capitalist, in your view, when do we want to date the turn to the market? And was it ever meaningful to view China as socialist? I take the view that... Um the Chinese revolution was primarily a national liberation struggle. I think the Chinese Communist Party's primary objective was the, the same objectives that, that had inspired many Chinese activists up until that point, which was essentially to establish a, a strong Chinese state that was capable, to, capable of standing on its own feet in a hostile world. And I, you know, I think there's many positive dimensions to that, but you know, in the mid-20th century to establish a new independent centre of capital accumulation was always going to come at a significant cost. So I see China as capitalist from, the, uh, from its inception. I think, you know, heavily statified initially, but nonetheless it was driven by the need to prioritise accumulation and the development of certain industries so as to be able to compete internationally. Now, that's not, a, that's not necessarily a... Um, dominant position uh, on the left today, but it's, it's one that makes sense to me because I, I just, I feel that there's a sort of a, there's a logical difficulty for anyone on the left to imagine a process taking place at the end of the Maoist period that is some kind of step back from socialism, some kind of anti-revolutionary or anti-socialist trend that, you know, in fact resolved a lot of difficulties that the Chinese economy was facing. Uh, at that time, in which a lot of people look back on, including in China today, as a, a necessary and, and positive step. So, you know, in that sense, there's, there's clearly distinctions between the, um, the Maoist period and the post-Maoist period, but I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, would, I wouldn't want to put those those, that on the level of a, of a systemic distinction. I think that the, um, you know, the Chinese communist tradition, theoretically, was always quite pragmatic, quite quite willing to adapt to circumstances and it's it's shown that over time in a way that it's been able to theorize this transition as somehow consistent with a uh, originary marxist theory you know to the point today where you have a party that um welcomes you know millionaires into its ranks is um presiding over an extremely exploitative system i mean i think that there's potentially something that can be recuperated from the maoist period in a sense of aspirations, I don't want to be entirely dismissive of the um, the interest and enthusiasm that some people on the left have, you know, for the aspirations of that period. But I, I, I do think that that requires a certain cherry picking of that period 
neglecting the, the significant um, cost that the Chinese people had to pay to establish China as this, you know, self-sufficient, uh, independent capitalist state that it, that it was. In terms of how you would want to define capitalism, then for you, capitalism would be about class relations, labor relations, and, and a, a regime of accumulation, whereas the question of whether markets are, are present or not is really a, a secondary feature in your view then? Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily... Um, I mean, it's always seemed sensible to me to think about the Chinese state, you know, in the way that we would think about a large corporation. That is to say, you know, there are, there are mechanisms of exchange and distribution that take place inside large corporations that don't, um, you know, don't necessarily conform to market principles. You don't have every, every, every employee of a corporation acting as an individual buyer and seller inside that kind of system. So from by certain definitions of capitalism, you know, that, that um, negates the, uh, you know, the functioning of the principle of value and so on. But China is still acting competitively at an international level. This is all directed towards the participation of China in a, um, you know, in a competitive international system from which China initially was quite disconnected. That was part of the strategy, but then was you know, able to reinsert itself in various ways, you know, initially largely as a center of production, receiving investment from overseas. And now that's evolved into a, um, you know, into a position where they have been able to generate more of a, a domestic consumer economy and um, are now exporting capital in ways that, that look like more familiar behaviour of capitalist powers. So if we turn to China's foreign policy, it increasingly feels like we're seeing a polarisation of opinion in the West, where either China is viewed as an aggressive world power seeking a hegemonic position and aiming to displace the United States, whilst on the other hand, there are those who paint China as this embattled and encircled second-order power that is the victim of US imperialism, and often that position is associated with claims that China is in fact, in some sense, a socialist country. You've both sought to complicate that picture in your work. So could you explain how you see China's foreign policy today? And we start with, with you, Toby. I think we should start with... Um how the Chinese government understands the economic role of China in, in the world, because it's very closely tied to questions of foreign policy, as it is here in the U.S. So this is also a, a source of great anxiety in, in the U.S., like people in the U.S., especially elites thinking about China. China's economy is growing. It could soon overtake the U.S. as the world's top economy. And importantly, the development of the Chinese economy has the potential to disrupt the U.S.-China economic relationship where in, in which the U.S. sits at the very top of the global economy and China occupies a subordinate position along with most of the, the rest of the world, right? So that global economic model had all the, the most powerful, most important, most advanced, most profitable firms, largely controlled by the U.S. and some U.S. allies. And China's economic role was to be a source of low to mid-level manufacturing for a, a global economic system controlled at the top by U.S firms and some firms based in other allied countries. A subordinate but complementary role. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Subordinate but complementary. And, you know, that, that's a relationship that lasted for some decades because it was in different ways beneficial from the point of view of, of, of both the U.S. and China, at least as the national interest is, is understood in both countries. So that 
relationship is, I guess, in a period of, of crisis because of the development of firms in China that are no longer subordinate to their counterparts in the United States, but now uh, competitors threatening to potentially overtake them. So, so for example, the, the enormous concern over the advances in 5G technology in, in China is, is like an example of, of this, uh, that China is like a world leader in 5G. And the U.S. has really nothing to, to compete with that. And, you know, another part of China's economic rise in, in the world is its changing rela- economic relationships, not just with the U.S., but with other parts of the world, particularly with uh, global South countries, where China is increasingly establishing stronger economic connections with a number of, of regions in, in the global South. And so what are the consequences for foreign policy? I think we need to understand foreign policy on the part of the US, China, every other country is one of, one of the primary functions of it is to ensure security for the needs of the economy to in, ensure access to markets and to secure important shipping lanes and just to keep the, the world safe for capitalism. And so as the Chinese economy sort of threatens to step out of its role subordinate to the United States, led section of the global economy in in a similar way the chinese military power is threatening to step out of its role of of subordination to u.s military hegemony so china is threatening the ability of the u.s military to maintain you know total control over the entire planet so that is that is a real threat to the established priorities of the United States national security establishment. But but this threat to U.S. military hegemony then gets reinterpreted as somehow a threat to U.S. national security, right? So the possibility that the U.S. military might lose control of the South China Sea is real, but somehow that gets reinterpreted as like a threat to the United States. Did you want to jump in on that, David? I don't think that Chinese foreign policy is especially predatory in comparison to any other country's foreign policy, but I also don't think it's any more liberatory. And I think there's been a debate for some time now surrounding this notion of the, you know, a shift from a, a unipolar world to a multipolar world. A lot of people have put their hopes in institutions such as uh, blocks, let's say, such as the BRICS economies as offering some kind of democratizing force in in the global economy. And I think that that debate has been playing out for long enough now that we can say that that's not really the way that this thing is um, eventuating. I think that China has, in a lot of cases, assimilated to and piggybacked off the existing structure of international financial institutions, uh, the World Bank, and so on. It has begun to play a slightly more assertive role in institutions like the uh, United Nations for example, where we've started to see China, which brings to institutions like this a a historical wariness of American unilateralism. And um, and particularly after the, um, you know, the interventions into Libya, we started to see China putting its foot down a little bit more to prevent the possibility of the United Nations being used as a a sort of multilateral platform for um, American intervention internationally. 
But of course, at the same time, we're starting to see the potential for China as it has, you know, as it has gone out internationally, that it may begin to play more of a role militarily in guarding these strategic trade corridors that it's establishing through the Belt and Road Initiative and so on. So I do think that, um, again, it's, it's, it's quite understandable, I think, you know, for, for people in parts of the world that have been living under the thumb of American domination for, for, for many decades, that they, you know, they would see China as some sort of alternative, at least offering certain countries options that they didn't previously had have and i and i think for elites in certain parts of the world certainly in a place like africa this is introducing new models of development new new strategies that um that that they're exploring but i i think that we are you know we we at the same time we're seeing very much the same sort of corruption exploitation environmental degradation that we associate with um with the um western led uh, institutions as well yeah, I want to add, like, there are very, there are some important differences between the sort of options that Chinese capital offers to Global South countries versus the US, Europe, and Western led institutions. So, China will help you build, like, physical infrastructure at large scale, like ports, bridges, new rail projects. And that kind of investment and financing is hard to squeeze out of Western-led institutions and, and governments. And China will also not demand that you change domestic policy by implementing, like, neoliberal education reforms or, or whatever, which can be part of the deal from Western-led um, institutions and governments. So there are definitely some advantages there if you're a government in the in the global south. This is not, however, like David said, it's, there's nothing like inherently liberatory about this. There's like some potential there that needs to be like mobilized, but also like critiqued, I think, from the perspective of other countries in, in the global south. And those debates are, are happening. On the question of the Chinese Communist Party's long-term foreign policy objectives, I think Cold War analogies are often not very helpful, but I did wonder if there was a sort of imperfect parallel with the Soviet Union in the 1970s and and 80s, when that society was no longer, aside from rhetorical flourishes, bent on on, on global domination or world revolution or anything like that. But it was certainly a society that was was determined to maintain its sphere of influence in Eastern Europe and and parts of the Middle East and, and Africa. Obviously, the Soviet Union was a declining power and not a rising one like China. But I, but I wonder if it's somewhat similar in that regard in that we might be better thinking about China's ambitions in terms of defending a sphere of influence and perhaps a very authoritarian one rather than seeking, you know, having these kind of world conquering ambitions. I agree. Look, I think if you I think if you look at the United States, for example, in the uh, in the 19th century, as it was moving into the Pacific, there was just this assumption that there would come a time when its its economic heft would translate into political heft. And I think China is reaching that point as well, where it wants to be able to parlay some of this economic weight that it's gained in the global economy into into political influence. And I think particularly, you know, as all states tend to do, you know, these basic questions of security, security of sea lanes, those types of things, are, you know, clearly determining the priorities at this particular point in time in places like the, uh, the South China Sea and, and so on. I think, it's, I think it's a little bit of a tricky game to get into to try to pass things in terms of offensive or defensive moves because, of course, I mean, if you, if you pair it back, the United States itself put forward defensive justifications for its, um, 
its determination to to dominate the Pacific. You know, having reached the end of the the Western American continent, they, they felt they were you know this was this intolerable exposure that they that they were vulnerable to there, and therefore they had to turn the Pacific into a into an American lake essentially. Now, of course, you know that's now experienced as a you know the long history of American imperialism in East Asia, but um, that's why I think it you know it can be can be quite difficult and not unnecessary, I suppose, for the left as well to try to define what is defensive or offensive in, in this particular case. Because of course, I mean, China's efforts to militarize the South China Sea, it's experienced as a disruptive, aggressive move by by its neighbors. So we can acknowledge that. At the same time as we can acknowledge that, you know, there are Western think tanks who are out there openly strategizing about China's vulnerabilities to a blockade in the South China Sea. These these things are both fueling the, the, the situation. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, yeah, so again, with the example of the South China Sea, I think that it's important to understand this is a reaction to, like, I think a very understandable fear that, like, U.S. naval hegemony in the South China Sea can threaten to choke off China in its own backyard. And the way that that situation has developed is only, like, sort of exacerbating, like, those those um, anxieties on the part of the Chinese ruling class, I think. But what feel like defensive maneuvers can easily turn all too easily turn into like military expansionism, right? China has expanding economic interests around the world. And depending on the trajectory of this US-China conflict, that could all too easily translate into the sense that in order to defend our economic links with, you know, say, Africa, we can't trust the dominant U.S. military to do that work. In fact, maybe the U.S. military will be a threat to that. So the only possible response for us is to up our own military presence on the continent of Africa or something like that, right? So that's that's like a, a hypothetical scenario, but I think like all too realistic. And so we can have a dynamic where a sense that we're only defending our interests turns into quite aggressive military expansion. And is that is that like something that the Chinese government has in mind? Like, I don't know, but what these powers or, or the people running these countries like intend to do is not really the issue. What's the problem here is a global dynamic that is pushing the US and China into increasingly an increasingly aggressive posture against one another, a sense of zero-sum competition, which will also translate into zero-sum competition over who has military control over what part of the world, zero-sum competition over economic relationships with other countries. And I, I think the great danger is that we're now in, in a feedback loop where everything China does is received as just very aggressive from the U.S. and vice versa. And then it just feeds into into a cycle and it can very quickly get out of control. You, you made this parallel with sort of the late stages of the Cold War. What I think is importantly different there is the underlying dynamics where today it is it is pushing the U.S. and China into escalating conflict. And it's sort of that sort of independent of what particular political leaders might be planning <laughs> for how they're going to manage the conflict. In terms of how the left relates to these increasing tensions, 
There seems to be something obviously quite appealing from a democratic socialist perspective to take a neither Washington nor, nor Beijing approach. But I wanted to put to you both the view of somebody like Paul Mason, who, if, if I'm understanding his, his position correctly, I think the argument he makes is that the authoritarianism of, of, the, of the PRC regime and the nature of its ruling ideology is, is so pernicious that it may be necessary for people on the left to hold our noses and, and reckon with the needs to even sure up institutions such as, as NATO, because I suppose from his perspective, countries like the United States or, or, or Britain or Australia are at least formally democratic. We have free press and free speech of a kind. Obviously, that's entirely mediated through having a capitalist economy and the massive power differentials that that implies. But what's your view on, on, on that line regarding the threat posed by the ideology of, of the Chinese state? Yeah, I feel that we're um, in some ways reliving the uh, the days of the uh, the beginnings of the war on terror because it is the case that any time you have this this emergence of this this notion that there is this new threat to the uh, the liberal order, and in this case particularly we have this sort of state-sponsored threat, you know, to these values or these institutions. You do get this confusion on the left, and we've seen people, you know, often by focusing in on Chinese domestic politics, now beginning to throw in their lot with, you know, the hawkish security military viewpoint on, on China. And that's, that's something that's very much cultivated by that side of politics. It's an alliance that is being, to some extent, deliberately cultivated. We can see it before our eyes at, at, this, at this particular point in time. I think we really need to strongly resist that kind of temptation. I think at base, we have to recognize that any conflict between China and the US or between China, the US uh, and its allies at its root is a battle for the spoils of the global economy. It's not a conflict that is being driven by the misgivings or criticisms that people might feel towards uh, China's domestic politics, which are entirely legitimate. And it's not a conflict that is going to enhance our ability to actually do anything about those issues. In fact, it's becoming more and more difficult for us to even conceive of a, a politics of solidarity with people inside China as these tensions ratchet up. You know, I think that the other thing we need to keep in mind, of course, is that this, this sort of conflict, I mean, people are talking about gearing up for you know, multiple decades long great power competition between between China and the West. You know, history tells us that that's going to have a very deleterious effect, I think, on questions of civil liberties. You know, we're already seeing it in the way in which the the scare surrounding Chinese influence or interference, essentially this notion of China subverting the institutions of the West in our own domestic politics, the way that this is already fueling a uh, you know ongoing expansion of security laws, an increasingly interventionist role of security agencies in our own domestic politics. I think anyone who is anxious to preserve democratic institutions in the West needs to be very conscious that that's the dynamic we risk getting into by buying into this conflict with China. It's been really apparent to me, you know, in a place like Australia, as we've gone down this road, that every every policy step, every legislative step that we take is actually just bringing us one step closer to the, the sort of surveillance state that exists in a place like China. Yeah, a thing to add to that is, I, I think we need a very different analysis of the rise of authoritarianism and 
this idea that authoritarianism in China is some sort of unique threat to an otherwise healthy global liberal order or something. It seems like very wrong to me. Authoritarianism in China is a real problem. It's on the rise, has been on the rise for the past decade, but it has also been on the rise in Europe, the rest of Asia, just around the world, and including here in the United States. We have an authoritarian nationalist government with some very real fears that that could threaten this year's elections. So this isn't something that is somehow particular to China. It is part of a global trend, and we need to be able to understand the rise of authoritarian nationalism as a global trend. And I think, you know, the right sort of way to, to think about it is that following the 2008 financial crisis, the global capitalist system never fully recovered. This past decade, global economic growth has been very weak. And that is a fundamental dynamic that has pushed elites around the world into an increasing sense of zero-sum competition. And that is a sort of root source of the rise in authoritarian nationalism. And that has played out in China. It's also playing out in Europe. The way it's playing out in Europe, it's not, yeah, I don't know. If you're worried about the rise of authoritarianism, we need to see how this is part of global forces that are playing out in a wide range of countries. And taking this sort of confrontational approach to China is only feeding that reactionary nationalism. And that's the last thing that anyone on the left should be doing. You've been listening to a World Transform special episode of Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider becoming a £3 supporter on Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. And if you would like to support the work of The World Transformed, you can do so at theworldtransformed.org forward slash support. Thanks for listening.